0: Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to take it and turn with me to the book of Mark. Whether you have a printed copy, as I prefer, or a device with an app on it, I want you to find the book of Mark. And when you find the book of Mark, I'd like you to find Mark chapter 15. And once you find the 15th chapter of the book of Mark, this morning I'm going to preach from verses 42 down through verse 47. Mark 15, verses 42 through verse 47. We all have defining moments, those moments in our life that we look back on and they're just more important than other moments. Now, I don't know about your life, but most of my life is normal, abnormal by some people's descriptions, but it's ho-hum, it's monotonous, There's plenty of stuff in my life that, like you, I do every day that's expected of me as a a person, as a husband, as a father, as a citizen. And there are a lot of things that we would describe as ordinary. But then that makes us understand the meaning of the word extraordinary. Something that's extraordinary is something that's not ordinary. It's a Defining moment in our life. If you were to just take inventory of your life, you may be just getting going. You may be a young person. You may say, "I'm not a young person. I I, I got more life behind me than in that is in front of me, and therefore, you may have a lot of time to reflect and think about this. When you are young, you don't worry about anything. At some point, you get so old, you stop buying green bananas. But when, when you're young, You don't worry about anything. When you are old, you reflect on everything. And one of the things that happens when you reflect is that you come to those defining moments of your life. Some of them remember, some of them you don't remember. Think about your first birthday when you became one. That's a defining moment. It celebrates that first year that you have spent on this earth. And then there are times when you celebrate accomplishments, We have many in our church that are getting ready to graduate, whether it be high school or technical school, vocational school, college, university, graduate degrees, doctorate degrees. Every spring, we have members of Church at the Mill enjoy the fruit of their labor, and they graduate, and they are excited, they are celebrated, and we should celebrate them. Of course, for most people, there's that defining moment of falling in love exchanging rings. Laurel played her cards right, and I changed her last name. (laughs) That moment when you get married, when you begin a life together, and invariably, whether through biology or adoption, God blesses you with becoming a first-time parent, and I couldn't find a picture that more represented how I felt about it than This one, notice the little guys wide awake, looking at dad, wondering, what are you doing? Now, not all defining moments have to do with age. It makes sense that we're born and and that we uh, accumulate some sort of degree or some sort of ability to earn a living, that we take a spouse, a husband or a wife, that we have the privilege of being parents, whether we have children uh, through our own uh, union or we enjoy the gift of adoption or foster care. All those tend to have that generational aspect. But then there are some moments that are defining that happened for people at all different times. One of the things we think about most around this time of year is how sweet it is to celebrate baptisms that moment in your life where you professed Christ. Many of you have that moment. You could tell me I was baptized at this church by this pastor. I was baptized on such and such date uh, by this student pastor. I, I remember when I was baptized as a little girl or a little boy. Some of you may be enjoying the thought of being baptized soon in one of our services, or you may have a child who's readying their heart, and you feel as though they're getting near that moment where they understand faith and they've professed Christ, and you You'll look forward to their baptism. That's a defining moment. That's a moment where we go public with our faith. But then there are other defining moments where there's finality. I've had some defining moments at caskets before. I've said goodbye to people, and by saying goodbye to them, my life will never be the same. Some of you may be experiencing your first Easter next week without a loved one, without someone who was with you last year and this year. They are not, and distance has not separated you, but death has. We all have these moments. Some of the moments happen to us, and some of the moments we happen to. I tell my kids all the time, don't let life happen to you. Get up and happen to life. Live. Make a difference. Encourage people around you. Leverage your gifts and abilities. Don't be lazy. Grab every day, for yesterday's gone, and tomorrow may not come. One of the things I do when I catch them in the kitchen or the pantry early in the morning, rumbling around, finding some high-end carb breakfast that they prefer over good stuff like avocados and eggs and bacon, I say, hey, you know why today matters, don't you? And I say, say, let me tell you why today matters. Yesterday, where is it? Tell me, I don't want to talk to you, Dad. Right. Tell me where it is. Tell me where it is. It's gone, Dad. Tell me about tomorrow. Where's tomorrow? It, Dad, I already told you yesterday. It's not promised. You're right. Yesterday's gone. Tomorrow's not promised, which means today is the most important day of your life. And when you live by that mantra, you tend to stack up more defining moments. But could there be a defining moment that actually happens in the midst of despair, heartache, disaster, and death. And that was the moment for a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Allow me this morning briefly to preach to you a message simply entitled Buried With care. I began a sermon series last week called Handled with Care, and I told you we were going to spend three weeks looking at three stories that all have one common thread. They all intersect at the body of Jesus the physical body of Jesus. Last week, Mary of Bethany anointed the Lord Jesus with care there as a dinner was being hosted, celebrating his presence in their life. Unbeknownst to those around, Jesus said, you leave her alone and you allow her to do this act of beautiful love for me because she is anointing me for my burial." And so Mary of Bethany emerges from the backdrop of Easter and becomes one of those figures we remember and celebrate even today, and that's exactly what Jesus said in her passage last week. He said, what she has done to me will be proclaimed wherever the gospel is preached. We come today to the second person who's not a lead actor or actress in the Easter story. He's not an apostle or a disciple. He's not a prominent figure within Jesus' inner circle. Rather, he's a man who's only mentioned once, briefly, in the Scriptures. And it is at that moment when Jesus has no life left in his body. Jesus has died. The setting for this begins at the end of the crucifixion. On Good Friday, when we celebrate the death of Jesus, we typically in our services in various ways, in your personal reading time, perhaps in a devotion that you're following this week, we talk about and commemorate the steps that were involved in Jesus' death, steps that began with his arrest the evening before in the Garden of Gethsemane that was precluded by the betrayal of Judas Iscariot He's then arrested and held and beaten. A mock trial is whipped up. Mock charges are made up. And by Friday early morning, he's in the presence of Pontius Pilate. Pilate doesn't know what to do with him and after a quasi-hearing sends him over to Herod who was the puppet leader of the Jews put in place by the Romans. Herod scoffs at him and treats him and belittles him in a disrespectful way. Sends him back to Pilate. Pilate tries multiple times to wash his hands of the affair. He does not see any guilt in the life of Jesus. Pilate actually is rather accurate at this. But eventually the crowd prevails, the plan of God unfolds and Jesus is sentenced to death and there he goes to Golgotha, to Calvary, to a hillside outside of Jerusalem where he is crucified, the Roman crucifixion that he endures to his left and to his right are two thieves and there the sinless son of God died for the sins of the world. You've heard it preached, you've heard it taught and I've described it briefly for you. And then he died. But anytime somebody dies, somebody else has to deal with the body. It's a disturbing thing whenever we find that authorities have discovered a missing body. And the moment the investigation closes, whether or not a family emerges, there are services in place to give the body a proper burial. There are many ways and many rituals and many cultural aspects to what we do with the body, but every culture under God's green earth or under God's sun on his green earth, every culture way, somehow knows you must deal with a dead body. It is not right to leave it out for the elements to, de- to decay in full exposure to nature, to animals to bacteria, to infection, to all the things that will come. And so what we find is that Jesus has died. And that's where Mark picks up, beginning in verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. Get your dates right. In the Jewish calendar, the Sabbath is Saturday. The seventh day of the week. Why? Because it was the seventh day after creation that God rested, Genesis 1, Genesis 2. And because of that, God set aside the seventh day to be a day of rest for his people. The seventh and final day of the week is Saturday. The day before Saturday is Friday. Jesus is crucified on Friday. But the Sabbath is coming. But in addition to being significant weekly, this was a significant Sabbath annually because Jesus was crucified during the Passover, not by mistake, but by the plan of God. The Passover was the annual festival when Jews would fill up Jerusalem and celebrate the great mercy and grace of God and commemorate the Passover that took place in Egypt when Pharaoh would not allow the children of the Hebrews to leave captivity and God sent the death angel. And God told his people through Moses, sacrifice a lamb and wipe the blood on the doorpost. And when the death angel sees the blood, he shall pass. I don't know if you grew up singing it, he shall pass, he shall pass over you. Hundreds of years before Jesus, God is saying, When I see the blood, I'll pass over you when I'm handing out death, when I'm handing out judgment, when I'm handing out wrath and justice. And that was a foreshadow of the ultimate lamb who would be sacrificed for the sins of the world. This was a significant day. And Mark wants us to know because of that, something's got to be done with this corpse on the cross. And the Bible continues to tell us in verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the courts to Joseph and Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb and the passage ends with a hint that Sunday's coming. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Now, if you're not careful, you'll blow right past this very brief account. But there's a word for us in this account. Remember why Mark wrote down the message of Jesus. All of the gospel writers, there are four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, wrote with intent. It's not as if an angel of the Lord just dropped into their living room and said, write down some stuff you remember about Jesus. It will be sweet for people to read in the future. No, no, no. They are writing... Because they recognize the people of God are beginning to face persecution. The first generation of eyewitnesses are dying. The faith is now being passed on to the next generation. In fact, when Mark wrote his earliest gospel, John Mark, who is Mark, John Mark wrote this under the influence of the apostle Peter. John Mark is Barnabas' cousin and he traveled with Paul in his first missionary journey. And he wrote this gospel in Rome to Christians who were beginning to be persecuted for their faith. Would they stand? Would they take courage? Well, if I were writing an account of the life of Jesus to people who were being asked to stand courageously for their faith, I believe I would include every example I could recall of men and women who took courage courage. And therein lies why Mark would tell us of Joseph of Arimathea. This is a story of a defining moment. To see it, Mark shows us first Joseph's credentials. Who is this guy? Well, look what the Bible says in verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea. Now, we don't have his last name. His last name is not given to us. But in the ancient world, often a person would be called by where they are from. So Joseph was from Arimathea. Now, Arimathea was a surrounding town. Ramatha is another way that it's pronounced in the scriptures. Joseph was from there. At this point, that's all we know. He does not get any more mentioned in any other portion of the Bible except for the account of Jesus' burial as recorded in the four Gospels. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council. Now, not to be confused, let's make sure we understand. This isn't the student council. This isn't the county council. This is the Sanhedrin council. The Sanhedrin council were the men who sentenced Jesus to die. Mark has this wonderful knack of showing us that outsiders were becoming insiders. There's an account earlier, I won't even take you there, where a scribe asked Jesus what's most important, and Jesus gives the great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and to love your neighbors as yourself. And the scribe says, you're exactly right. Mark paints this scribe, this Pharisee, as someone who was agreeing with Jesus. An even better example happened just a few sentences before this when the centurion watches Jesus die. Mark 15 verse 39, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last. Now how did he breathe his last? Well he gave up his spirit to the Lord. You and I have studied those sayings of Jesus from the cross. What did the Roman centurion, no doubt one of the men that drove the spikes into the wrists and the ankles of Jesus, may very well have been the man who plunged the spear into his side. He could have been a part of the detail that beat Jesus with the cat of nine tails, a whip designed to rip the flesh off of your back. This centurion says, truly, this man was the son of God. Who wrote the first gospel tract? It was Pilate who had a sign put on top of the cross, Jesus, the king of the Jews. And so Mark is showing us That it's not just the insiders that are beginning to sense and have revealed to them the truth of who Jesus is. And now we come to Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man, a prominent man. The other scriptures tell us that he had great wealth because the tomb was his and it was brand new. The poor in Jesus' day were relegated to using caves or old quarries that could be used for bodies to be buried in respect. The mode of operation in the ancient Near East was to have a tomb, to wrap the body, place it in the tomb, to come back a year later after the flesh had decayed, collect the bones, place the bones in a bone box, put those in another area of the tomb, and free up space for the next family member, the next loved one, to use the tomb. This was how it was done in the ancient Near East. This is a rocky, arid environment, digging graves out in the soil, especially on land you didn't own, was not allowed. And so Joseph of Arimathea is this wealthy man who is a member of the group of people that condemned Jesus to die. When we think about this, we we then get to his commitment. Look what happens in verse 43. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, but watch this, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. Some phrases need a little bit of definition. Where do we find this idea of looking for the kingdom of God? Now, on one sense, there were many in Jesus' day who believed that God's Messiah was going to come and deliver the Jews from their immediate situation of oppression under the Romans. In fact, some of Jesus' early followers walked away when they realized Jesus was not going to be a military leader. Jesus had no ambition to be a political leader. Jesus was not into acquiring wealth to be an economic leader. He was not going to lead a coup. He was not interested in a rebellion. This is why most people believe Judas sold him out. Judas was in it for the prominence. If you are on the winning side of a rebellion, you can profit greatly with influence and with money. And when Judas Iscariot realized this is not going to happen, he quickly said, how can I cash in on this to the degree that I don't lose everything? But when we find people who are looking for the kingdom of God as described here, In a sense, it's men and women who understand and desire for something greater. For for God to move in such a way that his kingdom in heaven becomes his kingdom on earth. I seem to remember a prayer that ends something like this. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, we know that Joseph will bury Jesus. I'll explain that in just a few moments. But you know where else this phrase is used? See, Joseph was looking for the kingdom of God as the last man to handle the body of Jesus. But do you remember the first man to handle the body of Jesus from the Christmas story? Luke chapter 2 tells us. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, looking for the kingdom of God. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And the Bible says a little bit later in verse 28, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. The man that dedicated the baby body of Jesus was looking for the kingdom of God. And the man who will bury the broken, dead body of Jesus is looking for the kingdom of God. John gives us even more commentary about it. Listen to what John says. John says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus. So in Joseph's heart, he'd already made the leap. He'd already decided, this is the Messiah. I will follow him. I believe in him. I trust him. But there's an incompleteness to his walk. Look at the next phrase. But secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. So up until this point, his commitment had been private. Why is it easier to have a private commitment to Jesus? Because you can privately make a decision in your mind or in your heart. And if you don't ever step out on faith, there'll be no consequences. There's no sacrifice. There's no public choice. There may be private battles going on. There may be private struggles that you fight. You may find yourself in a position where you feel the Lord working in your life to help you deal with some things in the secret places of your heart. But nothing about the gospel is to be held in secret. Nothing about the gospel is to be held privately. And this is where Joseph of Arimathea had been living. Why was he living there? Well, John tells us. Fear. In fact, when Jesus heals the blind man, remember when Jesus healed the blind man, the blind beggar? They drag his parents up and say, hey, did Jesus really heal this guy? You know what his parents said in John chapter 9, verse 22? His parents said these things. Because they feared the Jews. If we had time to read the full passage, I, you would see that they said, well, look, hey, we're not prepared to make a comment on the actions of Jesus. All we can say is this is our boy, and he was blind, and now he sees. It was the most politically correct admission that Jesus had done something in the Scriptures. But we're not confirming nor denying that he is the Messiah. Why did they act that way? Why was their answer so generic, John nine twenty two because they feared the Jews, the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of synagogue. In other words, to be excluded from the community of faith. Well, if you were a person in the community of faith, obviously the Messiah mattered to you. And if you made the determination that the Messiah was Jesus, you were then faced with the decision, do I choose what I believe to be the will of God or do I recognize the will of man? And there's that third terrible option that so many still choose today. I'll privately believe in Jesus, but I'll publicly go along with the world so I can have one foot in each camp. We see this unfold even more. Look at one more passage from the book of John. John 12, 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him members of the council, people like Joseph of Arimathea. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. And Joseph's not to be isolated. We're not to pick on Joseph as the only person who came to the conclusion that Jesus was the Messiah and was scared to death to admit it. To be honest with you, I meet people like this all the time. You say, you meet people who would tell you privately they're a follower of Jesus, but publicly would not admit it? Well, maybe not quite in those terms, but I meet people all the time who will line up quickly on Sunday to be here, but Monday through Saturday, the priorities of their life, the decisions of their life, the relationships of their life, the way in which they handle everything they've been given does not show their allegiance and their loyalty is to the Lord, rather it is to the norms of the world or the pull of their own This is where Joseph of Arimathea was living his life until Friday. And Friday became a defining moment for him. He looked and saw the limp, lifeless body of a badly disfigured, terribly dehydrated. Dead man. And he faced a decision. He could have walked away. We have no textual evidence that anybody in Jesus' life knew Joseph or expected anything of him. Every other member of the Sanhedrin Council walked away. But in that moment, he made a decision, a defining moment. This is where we get to Mark showing us Joseph's courage. The very third phrase of verse 43 is the point of the passage. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom, took courage. Took courage. He mustered up the will. He decided to act in strength and not weakness. This is why Mark would record this. Mark is recording this so that people could read this in the future and know that you can look upon the cross of Christ and take courage. He took courage. He had to do something. Well, he doesn't own Jesus' body. He's not Jesus' relative. In fact, when Jesus became a prisoner of the state, and when Jesus became someone who would be executed by the state, his body then becomes property of the state. Even in our culture today, in the states where capital punishment is executed, when a prisoner is executed, after the execution... Documentation is published. The news outlets will be told. This prisoner was executed on this day. These were the men and women who witnessed the execution. This was the pastor who came and prayed. These were the guards who oversaw it. This was the execution detail that carried out the execution. These were the last rites that were read to it. The charges that were levied. Everything was done in an orderly fashion. And then everybody goes home, and there is a detail within the prison That will come and they will take the body and they will bury the body, in most cases, at a state or federal prison cemetery. Somebody has to do something with the body and the state owns the body of anybody who's executed by the state. And so Joseph says, I've got to do something. What should I do? I'm tired of living in the secret. I'm not going to be in the faith closet. I'm going to honor my Lord. At least I can bury his body. But in order to bury his body, he has to be given permission. So the Bible tells us, beginning in verse 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. Why was Pilate surprised? How did Pilate know he had died? Look at the end of verse 43. Took courage, this is of Joseph, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. You can only ask for the body of a dead man. In other words, he couldn't go to Pilate and say, he's still alive, can I get him down? That would be an an effort to circumvent the execution. When he tells Pilate he'd like to have Jesus' body, Pilate is surprised that he's dead. Now, this is important. It's very important because it is yet another textual proof by non-followers of Jesus that Jesus really died. The scripture says, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. Now, he doesn't believe Joseph. Pilate has no love in his life for the Jewish people. They've just put him through a possible rebellion had he not crucified Jesus. There is no historical record that Pilate liked nor got along with the Jews. He was positioned there by the emperor in Rome. He did not want to be there. And by all accounts, he was not a very effective leader. So when this member of the Jewish council says, can I have his body? Pilate's got to be thinking several things. What's going on here? And is he already dead? Not trusting the Jews, Pilate sins for his own man. That's what the scripture says in verse 44. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether or not he was dead. And when he learned from the centurion, and that centurion is probably the one who confessed, surely this was the Son of God. So this wasn't a centurion that heard from a centurion who heard from somebody's brother-in-law who's married to somebody who knows the centurion that Jesus died. No, this is most likely the man who saw Jesus die, and he said he's dead, which is why it says in verse 45, and when he learned from the centurion that he was dead and he granted, he granted the corpse to Jesus. Again, notice the word choice. This is not a living body. This is not a sick man. This isn't a suffering rabbi. This is a corpse. And when he learned that the, from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down. You ever handled a dead body? Some of you have. Some of you are in the medical community. Others of you are first responders. You live long enough, you'll probably have a grandmother or a grandfather pass away in the home. One of the things they don't tell you about in seminary is the situations you find yourself in as a pastor. I've handled several dead bodies. Most of the time you do it so the family doesn't have to do it. You help them load the body on the gurney. On a few occasions, I've been the first to the scene. I've wiped blood off faces and combed hair, covered people with blankets and closed their eyes. I've held babies who were already with Jesus and taken them into the room to be with the family for a few moments before the body is taken and prepared. It's not a pleasant thing. It's not something that you want to do. But love does not always appear in warm, fuzzy moments that are worthy of Instagram. Love causes us to do things that are difficult at times, that are hard at times. Can you imagine Joseph of Arimathea's coming out party? Being when he walks past the crowds. Some people believe because of his wealth, he no doubt could have summoned the help of his servants. He may very well have. But the text seems to indicate that he also was involved and they took down this lifeless body. Why was it lifeless? Why was there no more suffering? Why was there no more groaning? Why were there no more sounds of distress and hurt and heartache? Because Jesus has said, it's finished. It's done. Into your hands, Lord, I commit my spirit. And the moment that happened, God began taking care of his son again. And so Jesus is taken down. And his body is wrapped in linen. It would have been wrapped from head to toe, covered very much like what you would picture a a mummy. John tells us that Nicodemus helped Joseph of Arimathea. Yet another secret follower, another man that made the decision that today was going to be the day after I have witnessed what he has been willing to do for me, I will gladly show my faith in him, faith in what they would see as a corpse and then the Bible tells us and he wrapped him in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of a rock and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb there are three reasons that stone was rolled there that day one is to keep animals from the body two is to keep grave robbers from the body but three God's got a stone to move on Sunday. You can't roll a stone away until a stone has been rolled in place. You don't bring a Savior out of a grave if he doesn't start Friday in a grave. See the control of God in all of these things. And then the Bible says in verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Where were the disciples? Where was Peter and John? Where's John Mark? Where where are these men? Well, they've all fled. Is that always the case? No, even John the Baptist enjoyed his disciples burying him. The book of Matthew tells us when John was beheaded, his head was brought in a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother, that's Herod's wife, Herodias, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went out and told Jesus. Verse 12 is what you're supposed to do. When the man you follow dies, you respect him. But you can if you're running in fear. By the time Jesus dies, the only people left are the centurions. The women had made their way home. The disciples had run. Jesus is dying. Peter is hiding. John is running. Mary is weeping. But nobody is there to bury him. And so Joseph does it because he can, because it's a defining moment, because he took courage. And some women followed him. And you know why they followed him? I'll tell you why this is in here. They were coming back Sunday to take care of him. Friday, Sabbath begins at dark. There was no time to do anything with his body. John's account tells us Nicodemus brought some spices for him, for the odor, for the aroma, for the preservation, for the honor, for the respect. But these women went and made sure they knew where the tomb was. Do you know why? Because even by the 2nd century, when people are trying to attack the resurrection of Jesus, one of the theories is, well, the women must have gone to the wrong tomb. And when they found that it was open and empty, they made up the story where Jesus had risen from the dead. This is why Mark says, no, 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 no. They followed Joseph. They saw the tomb. You don't forget That you can drive me to your mother's grave today. I can tell you where every one of my loved ones are buried. You don't forget that. Where is this courage? See, the world would say, take courage, it's in you. But I would say it's in him. Joseph of Arimathea was risking his own position on the Sanhedrin Council, his own reputation. At this point, you can't go back. In fact, he knew the law, and he knew the law needed to be obeyed. What does the Bible tell us in the book of Deuteronomy? And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, this is in the Old Testament, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God, and Jesus was. He became a curse that we might become a blessing. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So Joseph of Arimathea said, the only thing I know I can do is keep the law of God. And the law of God says, if a man has been executed, he ought to be buried as to not defile the land. Most people believe that Pilate said yes for one of two reasons. One, he probably didn't believe Jesus was worthy of the death. In fact, he inasmuch said, this man is innocent, his blood is off my hands. And so this was his way of showing his hand. Had Pilate believed that Jesus truly planned to lead a rebellion and usher in the kingdom of God that he was accused of ushering in, a political kingdom, a military kingdom, Pilate would have done what the Romans were noted of doing. He would have let the body hang for days To decay in front of the citizens to say, this is what will happen to you if you threaten Rome. Pilate did not believe that. Another reason Pilate released the body is because he'd already seen one uprising almost get out of control. By doing this last act of respect, he hoped that if Jesus truly had all these followers he talked about, they would not create another rebellion. So everything is working in God's plan. And that's where the courage comes from why did Joseph do this? I've asked myself that question all week. Why did he do this? I think he did it the same reason you and I do it. Defining moments where courage wins the day, always go back to love. He loved him. Jesus had nothing to offer at this point. Can't perform a miracle if you're a corpse. He loved him. He believed in him. He trusted him. You're looking for courage in your life? Let me tell you where it's going to come from. Him. Notice God's confirmation in this. He wants us to know Jesus is dead. It's finished. Notice his care. Friday afternoon, the wrath of God poured out on the Son of Man. But the moment it was done, God began seeing that this lifeless son was cared for. And notice his control. He controls every aspect of it to get a dead man to a grave that he won't stay in very long. He's in complete And total control. You want to be courageous in your life? Remember. While you'll never be able to trust the reactions of people. You can trust God. No one will care for you like the Lord. And no one can compare to the control he has. This week the dean of a seminary in Kiev, in Ukraine. His name is Vitali Venagerov. He was found dead, shot by Russians, soldiers, as he was simply walking from one area of Russian occupation to a safer area in Kiev. His body was found by the roadside, executed. Not a soldier, no weapon in his possession. He and another brother in Christ left the streets of a war-torn nation and stepped into God's kingdom for doing nothing wrong, simply being in the wrong place at the wrong time at the hands of wickedness, of injustice. You cannot relegate suffering and death that Jesus went through to antiquity. Modernity still has suffering, sorrow, heartache. But I couldn't help but think that Joseph was the last man to handle the dead body of Jesus. And yet as Jesus resurrects and the church is born, what does Paul say? To be absent in the body is to be present With the Lord. So Joseph was the last man to handle the dead body of Jesus. But Jesus is the first man to handle the dead of any of his followers. The moment this man saw his end, he stepped into the presence of the eternal care of Jesus. And when I think about that, it makes me hurt for the sorrow that his family is facing. But it makes me grateful that we are the ones who should be pitied and not my brother Vitali. He's with the Lord. Because of Jesus' death, he'll never know death again. Because of Jesus' death, he'll never fear an army again. Because of Jesus' death, he'll never know the suffering that he saw on the last day of his life. Because of Jesus' death, you and I can take courage. He is where it comes from.